Hey, welcome back to Unicorn's Couch. This is episode three, and I'm your host this week, Oren Howard. And I'm so excited to be back with my brethren again. Um, we have a lot of first-time listeners, so if you guys can take a minute to introduce yourself, give it about 15, 20 seconds, and tell them who you are so we can uh, engage the audience. Wow, that's what's up. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Robert Bacon, um, the third host of the Unicorn's Couch. Um, welcome back again. Uh, I am, by profession, a probation officer for juveniles in the district. Um, I'm currently married. I have six beautiful children, um, and I am just ecstatic to be able to speak my wisdom, but also be able to learn from these two brothers and share uh, whatever we can to help someone. So hello, everyone. and Welcome back. Yes, yes, and 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 peace, greetings, one and all. My name is Jeremy Darden, um, a licensed clinical social worker here in the Baltimore um, city area. Um, my wife and I are fortunate enough to um, to own our own private practice, um, which is called Intentional Healing Space. And um, as as Rob and Orrin have, have indicated, I'm also just really um, thankful and really happy and excited to be here today, and um, and look forward to getting the conversation going. So. Thank you. And I'm Oren Howard, licensed clinical social worker, also have my MBA. Uh, I own my practice called Inspired Leadership Consulting and Therapy Services or Therapy and Consulting Services, LLC. Um, I'm also a professor at the University of Maryland. And so with that, I got to shout out the University of Maryland School of Social Work Alumni Group. Hey. Um, they have come out in full force to support us to get more uh, participation, more listeners. Um, a special shout out to Nicole, Leticia, um, and others. And also from my family from DC, DC Public Schools, uh, Maneria and Desi and Fatima and some other folks. And uh, shout out to my Virginia crew, um, Eliza and C and all the rest of the people that uh, have given us wonderful feedback about the first two episodes, but this is just season one and we're going to do this thing as long as we continue to uplift people's spirits, as long as we continue to engage. And you want to know how you can find us? Well, you want to know how you can comment? Well, as we involve in this program, you can always email us at unicornscouch at gmail.com. Once again, that's unicornscouch at gmail.com. And if you want to find us, you can find us on iHeartRadio, Apple, iTunes, Facebook. Uh, shout out to we we did some marketing for Jeremy, um, putting putting his uh, name out there on Facebook. Uh -huh. uh, Simplecast, Spotify, Deezer, Dogcatcher, Chrome Mobile, Firefox, and Stage Fright. And so that's um, all the places you can find us. Uh, we also have a very important piece of this that I think um, is important is that support is ongoing and we want to make sure that we're responsive to you. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and give us some feedback about what you think about the show, whether you agree or disagree, we want to try and address it. Um, we get responses from three different countries, United States, Barbados, and France. So that's exciting. And the three uh, biggest states that we get support from gentlemen are Maryland, Pennsylvania and Texas. So shout out that. to all of those. Even though, 
even though we don't ride with the Cowboys here. Or do Not we? one bit. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, um, there was some feedback that uh, we got from our girl El Boogie in Texas um, about comfort, right? And if we can just establish a baseline that comfort is on, on a continuum when we talk about change, right? Do we agree with that? Like when we talk about comfort, we're not going to talk about comfort in the absolute. It can just fall somewhere on a continuum when we talk about changing your life, adjusting to the pandemic, adjusting to the civil unrest, the protests, or whatever you're going on in your personal life, et cetera, right? How do you guys mm-hmm. feel about that? Agree, 100%. So then the question out of the conversation that came out that I wanted to start to ask you guys about is this question that came out of the conversation, should we be comfortable during the change process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if, if I may, um, you know, just kind of entering into the question and, and giving it some thought. Um, anytime I hear the word should, I, I'm, I'm kind of keen on that, 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 that word because it implies or it infers a, a couple of things. And, um, and, you know, in therapy, we work with folks all the time. I, I pr- apply it in my own private practice, personal practice. Um, and so should implies like there's one way or one wrong way or a moral way to do something as though that if we if we don't do what we should, then we're wrong in some kind of way. Right. And so I would just like to enter into the conversation just maybe by framing it. Could we feel uncomfortable? And absolutely. Absolutely. We would feel uncomfortable um, during all of what's going on. And 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 these days and times, but also during the, the, the natural evolution, growth or change process. So um, so. I remind myself and and I work with folks all the time about just kind of understanding what our comfort zone is and then growing beyond it. Right. So that um, so that we're living in very, very tense and very disruptive times, very disquieting times. And anybody that is comfortable with this system as it has been for 450, 500 years, anybody that's comfortable in this system needs to be uncomfortable. Right. Mm. Needs to be disquieted. Right. There needs to be some unrest, maybe not always in the violent kind, but there needs to be some unrest to disquiet and to discomfort us so that we can look to see where comfort has actually maybe created some complacency in our lives and look to see where we can maybe um, till the soil and, uh, you know, uproot some things. Right. Um, and then plant some, some some goodness along the way. So I, I think that anytime we're dealing with a change process, we have to understand that it cannot, nor it should not or could not always be comforting. Right. But there's also this this internal maybe resonance or this vibration that might exist with us where there might be some calm or some clarity even during the discomfort, right? And, and if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to, but but I don't want to monopolize the conversation, Rob. Ah, you good. We dropped, I know you just right did. Yes, sir. So what are your thoughts, Rob? No, I mean, Jeremy, I'm sitting here listening and, you know, I'm, I'm just taking it in. You know, when you talk about the word should, it implies like a duty or an obligation, right? And so when you, uh, let me answer the question this way. Uh, Yes, we should. But the problem is, is that we then need to teach, right? So once you judge and you say, okay, you should feel uncomfortable, right? And then what? Um, I think a lot of times with the complacency, as Jeremy says, um, there's a lot of things that we should do. Um, But the problem is, is that we never kind of take that next step. So now that we 
should feel uncomfortable in this process. Um, I don't want us to lose the vigor that we have to finish answering the problem um, and finish learning now that we've decided that we should, you know, do something about it. Um, and then what are our responses? What are we getting? And are we learning from that? Um, so, you know, just let the young lady know that you know, I feel her, um, but we still have to keep this conversation going. So, yes, we should, yeah. you know, be uncomfortable in this process, but we also need to worry about, okay, now what's my next step? And are we able to talk about what the next step is? Yeah. And, and, and if I may, I, I think that uncomfortable is inevitable in this mm-hmm. in this conversation. Right. It's a matter of what do we do with that discomfort? How do we actualize it or how do we activate it to do something more positive or more progressive um, in our own personal lives, but then also communally as well? So, yeah, absolutely. And so I think I'm going to look at this from two different angles. Right. There is the belief system or the model of trans theoretical model stages of change. And this is something that we teach in the school of social work and we teach in the mental health profession. And it basically assumes that there's five stages that we are going to go through when we talk about change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Just by the nature of those different things, and you know, I'm not gonna make this a class, but by the nature of those three, those five things, there are two of them that that automatically come with a level of discomfort mm. when you're contemplating and you're contemplating change mm-hmm. because it's stepping out of side of your norm. Discomfort doesn't always have to be unpleasant, right? That's right. That's right. So, so it's important for us to make that distinction. So I actually do kind of think that you do have to have some level of discomfort. It doesn't have to be painful discomfort, That's but right. it's a level of discomfort that promote some change. Therefore, where are we at today? Well, we have to, which is my second point around change and around what's going on, is when you talk about structural oppression, when you talk about how it's impacting um, disenfranchised people, right? That You look at these five stages um, and you're hearing some themes from people of color around the stages. They haven't been they've been in the let's prepare and make action stage for years, decades, centuries. centuries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, when you hear somebody say, I'm tired, right? Yeah. They they've been waiting for other people to get out of the pre-contemplation Ooh. stage. So when somebody takes a knee, right, <laughs> you know, and 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 that's not sufficient. Now you're un-American. Or somebody um, actually protest peacefully and you get hit with that good pepper spray or whatever, you know, then then you 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 have to develop a greater level of understanding about the discomfort. And so when she was asking the question, she was referencing this period of time that we're in. And I think it would be remiss for us to be able to ignore it because we have two different groups or multiple groups in different phases of this change. And so so one of the challenges we have, and I said this last week in my class, like, you know, if you are um, listening to how people and how it's being reported in change around this 
structural oppression and things like that. And just the bare mention of Juneteenth. And when they they mentioned on, I think, one of the major networks, they mentioned that somehow, you know, the Galveston, Texas folks mm. didn't get word that slavery had ended two years prior. Well, that indicates a stage of change that we if we ignore that, then then we 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 put ourselves at risk because that's not actually true. You know, Texas and the rest of the South, they're not that far from each other. And so they knew that they lost a war. They deceived a group of people. Mm-hmm. And, and that 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 makes us wonder and worry and get tired about all these stages of change. So I didn't want to make this whole episode about that. I just wanted to put that bug in your ear. But today, and, and, and if I may, I'm just saying, you know, the, the, the sixth stage of that change is also relapse. Relapse yeah. occurs at any part of the change process. And I think we need to be very, very watchful of relapse within ourselves. Do we fall back into a comfort zone or a sense of complacency? Yeah. Or do we allow those that are speaking out and protesting and doing a lot of action right now, maybe to regress or to relapse into old colonizing types of behavior, right? Because right now they know, you know, these corporations are knowing that if they don't send out a message, they're going to lose a lot of money. They're going to, they're going to be the target of a lot of um, protests. Right. And so again, just kind of looking at that stages of change model and, and being awful, keeping our eye on a relapse because relapse is always the odds on favorite. Yeah. We always can, you know, regress back to a prior stage of, of, of being or functioning. And so we have to stay diligent, right? We have to stay diligent within ourselves and our own practice, but we also have to hold others, those around us accountable to the best of our ability, right? So, yes. yep. so I, the question. I, I love that. I think accountability is a theme of every episode, how we can personally be more accountable to ourselves, mm-hmm. to, to each other um, and, and, and manifest that. And so, I'm going to transition a little bit into one of the main topics about growth and healing, right? We spend a lot of time in our profession. We spend a significant amount of time in our personal life addressing growth and healing. So I'm going to ask you, starting with you, Rob, what does growth and healing mean to you professionally and personally? I'm glad that you asked that question. So, Let's start professionally. So professionally, um, I don't necessarily believe that it's a healing component. It's more of growth. Um, And how I view growth professionally is uh, being able to reach the kids that uh, I work with, um, if not all, in some way. Uh, And also uh, looking at how that's going to improve uh, the work that I do. Uh, As far as, um, you know, at one point of my life, I considered growth as uh, moving up the corporate ladder or making more money uh, as growth, Um, but more money, more problems, right? Uh, So I would really have to judge whether or not the growth was for me. Uh, In terms of um, personally, um, uh, that's where I bring in the healing. A lot of times I've now view uh, my growth uh, as when I'm going through something uh, and I'm able to heal from it um, and then go back and look at it and see if I have grown um, because a lot of the things that have happened uh, in order for me to judge that doesn't necessarily come with a growth component, although I want it to. Um, 
you know, a bad relationship, uh, let's just say a friendship with someone that I've had for years. And then all of a sudden me and this guy fall out over something silly. Um, and then I'm like, well, I guess I grew from that, but no, not necessarily. Um, so, you know, I look at it as an ever changing um, kind of paradigm that I'm in, um, in my personal life. Um, I never really try to put that in my professional life if I can help it. Although it, uh, because we're in the profession that we in, it bleeds together sometimes. Uh, but that's, that, that's what, that's kind of what my working definition would be. Okay. Mm. Jeremy. Yeah, th- this is um, a question and, and I think a topic of conversation that that um, that really hits home for me um, personally and professionally. Um, when 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 uh, my wife and I looked at creating um, or at least offering a space of of helping other folks, right, of helping ourselves also. Um, and we were looking to name what what would a good name be? Right. It's almost like naming a child, yet you also have to worry about copywriting. Right. And so we, we, we came across this this we came across this idea of intentional healing space, because what we understand and what we respect is that growth and healing are not guaranteed. Time in and of itself does not offer everything that we need for growth and for healing, right? It takes some intentionality. It takes some practice. It takes some awareness, some attention, right? Um, and so um, so for me, growth and healing are synonymous. They, they, they go hand in hand, right? It's usually when we're wounded or we're experiencing some pain that can stunt our growth, Right. Um, as, as the Instagram therapists like to remind us all the time that that a trigger is just a wound that hasn't healed yet. Right. And so when we're able to tap into what our source of pain or what our source of healing is, then it allows for us to grow or it prevents us from growing. Right. And so um, so. Yeah, as we look into what habits, what routines, what rituals might promote growth, might promote healing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to hear um, your guys' perspective on that and, and, and hope you all, um, you know, take interest and in, in, in hear what I have to share as well. So so to answer the question, um, you know, this is this is what we, we, we do and this is what we practice to the best of our ability um, personally and professionally, which is um, paying attention to what our growth and healing requirements are. So, yep. So for me, I think. Change is inevitable and it's constant. And when we talk about how we maneuver around the concept of change, we have to look at our growth. And I think, you know, you can grow straight if you take care of your body and you, you know, things align or you can grow with a lean, you can grow with a with a Mm -hmm. challenge depending on how you respond. But you're going to grow. And what the goal professionally for me to address with everybody that I touch in any professional capacity is to promote the optimal growth for them. Mm -hmm. And so optimal for them may not be optimal for me, but I, I recognize that if, if they have control of their growth process and they're present to their growth process, they're, they're more likely to be watered more abundantly. Mm -hmm. 
and, and grow stronger and, and taller. And when it comes to healing, healing is a, a significant challenge for a lot of people professionally. It's healing is a significant challenge because healing requires acknowledgement. It requires acknowledgement of pain. Mm-hmm. And so often people have been reinforced by their behaviors, by their by their belief systems, by what's been passed down to avoid pain at all costs. And what it does is it challenges your healing process when you avoid pain. And so professionally, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying you to get you to be present in your pain, mm-hmm. learning how to sit with it. When, I, when I've done crisis work and I talk to people about trauma, no, it's not a graduation. You don't get over a loss. No. You just learn how to live with it. And it manifests differently as you go through different stages of life. So I've always tried to promote that. Now, personally, I will say it is a struggle to try and manifest presence daily when you talk about growth and healing on a personal level. And so as much as I can do it for other people, it makes it even doubly more complicated to reinforce it for myself. So when I talk to other people that's in this field, like I try and remind them how much we're challenged by it because pain occurs for us just as the helpers, just like it occurs for the people who have sought out uh, support to, to, to kind of address it. So for me, those two have significant meaning both professionally and personally. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about habits. I'm going to go with a basic definition um, from dictionary.com. So any of my students listening, please don't. This is not a vetted source that I support. (laughs) I will take off. So habits, an inquired behavior pattern regularly followed until it becomes involuntary. I'm going to read it again. An acquired behavior pattern regularly followed until it becomes um, involuntary. And I'm also going to give you this rule. I couldn't find the source of who created the 2190 rule, but I'm going to say the 2190 day rule is it takes 21 days to form a habit and 90 days to make it permanent. So I want your feedback on those two concepts and answer this question within that. Do you think Habits are important, and why? Mm. So, Jeremy. So, if I may, just if if there's some some leniency to expand the definition or the understanding of a habit, because as 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 the definition that you just read, it's it, it's an acquired thing, right? But I think also some habits can be instinctual, right? Some habits can be you know unconscious, not necessarily because they've always been acquired, but maybe because they come from somewhere deep within us. And it may not always be due to exposure, right? Um, it could be just kind of like a, a fundamental drive of human functioning, right? Um, and so, so that's my, my addition to that, right? It definitely habits can be acquired um, because we're, we're exposed to so much stimulation and we're exposed to so much modeling, um, in, in, in our day-to-day life, especially accumulation over time, that, um, that habits are, are very important, um, very important to be aware of because so much of our day-to-day life is a result of conditioning and habituated, um, 
you know, going through the motions, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so for me, what I would also add is that habits tend to be far less conscious oriented. Habits are things that are almost like reflexes. We do them without even giving them much thought, right? And so it would be an ideal, you know, um, scenario if all of our habits were positive, you know, loving and, and, and nurturing and nourishing of growth. But the problem is a lot of our habits are really the very things that keep us from growing. Mm. Right. And so I think that without some self-awareness, without knowledge of self, habits are actually um, just as much of a hindrance as they are of a helper. So what do you think, Rob? Oh, man. Uh <laughs> Okay, so I, I'm just going to tackle this, you know, from the back and come forward with it. Um, important and why. So, yes, there are some habits that you can form that are important, uh, and they're important because it exposes your growth or your non-growth. Um, and in learning about yourself and really talking uh, with yourself about some of these things that you noticed um, is not allowing you to grow or not allowing you to be in the place that you want to be in. Um, that is important. The why is, is that it is the key in order for you to change your behaviors, right? Um, do I think the 21 90-day, uh, I mean, yeah, 21-day, 90-day rule Um, I I believe in that. Again, I think a lot of this has to do with awareness. And I think you said it best, Jeremy and Orn, if it's involuntary, then you're really not aware of it per se. Um, It is just things that happen. Um, I have a beard. I have a tendency to do certain things, you know, where I, I stroke my beard or what have you, or, you know, you may, you may blink or, you know, things of that nature. So you don't, kind of think about it in the context of change and growth um, until it becomes something that doesn't uh, allow you to go to a f- place that you want to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it, it, you know, I never really tested it out the 2190 days, but um, it would be kind of hard for me now uh, because I'm starting to pay attention to some of the habits that I have, um, particularly in my professional uh, sphere, because I'm not in a place where I'm able to reach kids the way that I want to now, and I'm very pigeon-toed about it. And so instead of me blaming, I'm now looking at me, and I'm looking at some of the things that I do that's habitual, um, right? So complaining about why I can't do something is a bad habit that I have. Um, so I'm not really thinking things all the way through or thinking outside of the box or doing things um, that will allow me to feel that I'm getting my point across, right? And that's in the professional field. Um, Personally, um, it's hard to kind of look at some habits because you get to a certain point where you feel like, okay, this is just me, you know? And And I love this, Jeremy, you said this earlier, we become content with well, this is just me, um, until someone else brings it to the attention of you 
that it bothers them. And so what is our first defense? Oh, well, you know, that's just you. This is just me. Instead of looking at it like, well, no, that's an involuntary movement that you do um, that you just don't pay attention to. Uh, so, you know, I, I can go on for days with this. Oh, but I mean, you know, it's kind of because, again, I, I, I'm in a phase right now uh, of looking at uh, my habits. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're in tune with it as you're starting to learn yourself. And you really have to start asking yourself, is this something good for me? Um, mm-hmm. Or am I just hiding from whatever pain that I'm going through? Um, because I have a habitual practice of not acknowledging it. Right. Oof. And so it's, it's, that's just my bad habit. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, during when we entered into the pandemic and we didn't have any point of reference as clinicians on how to engage um, with it. Um, I'm trained in several different kind of disaster models and, and those kind of things, but no one could anticipate how to respond to COVID-19. And one of the things that am I studying in preparation for working with people and working with myself and I and it parallel and oftentimes you'll hear us talk about it and you'll hear us talk from personal to professional because they parallel a lot of times but one of the things about um the work that I did in focusing on people's cognition or how they're thinking about things is I wanted to give them the greatest amount of control back when the pandemic hit and they lost a lot of control. We all lost a lot of control. Your outlets that you had prior to the pandemic were no longer available. You're not going to the movies. You're not going to the club. You're not going to the bar. You're not going to the basketball game. You're not going to the building. Um, you're not leaving out the house. You're not going to the park. You know. And so all these things that we had in our our utility belt of outlets no longer existed. So when you started planning for it. And I and and I wanted to attack the control piece and give people back the greatest control. I attacked habits. Mm. I attacked habits directly because what happened is now that the habits are taken away because you can't do some of those things anymore. You know, we wanted to exchange those habits, old habits for new habits. And I had to do it myself. When uh, the pandemic started, I was cooking up a storm, sending pictures to all my people all kinds of lasagnas and all those kind of things. But I realized that I wasn't feeling well. I wasn't feeling emotionally well. And so I made a decision, a conscious decision that I've talked about in other episodes of changing my habits. It gave me greater control back. Once I got greater control again, then I was able to tackle on, like, how can I identify and create a new safety, a new norm during this pandemic? And then then when uh, Brother Floyd, George Floyd died and things like that, I had to look at my habits again. You know, one habit that I had was some level of social media. Well, when the dust settled and we saw that, you know, some social media platforms were not invested in the wellness of a group of people, you know, I was prepared to change the habits again. And so I use habits and, I, and and I've never tested out the 2190 rule. I tend not to get people to focus on the days or account. I try to get them to focus on the spirit and, and the consistency. But I think that they are a instrument. Habits are an instrument of change. And so mm. from that being said, 
you know, this title is called Habits, Routines, and Rituals. Um, uh, routines is really a synonym for habits, right? And so when we talk about rituals, right, how have rituals been a benefit in your work, in your personal life, working with these, uh, for you, Rob, young people, and for you, Jeremy, with the, all these age groups, how have you utilized rituals to support that? Jeremy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for me, um, rituals involve inherently connect us with a sense of purpose, right? Um, you know, I, the way that I, you know, kind of distinguish habits, routines, and rituals is that, that routines are, are habits that are done with some intentionality, right? Um, routines don't come either already conditioned or already pre-programmed in our, in our DNA as an instinctual drive. And so in order for us to develop some routines, we have to have some intentionality in doing that, right? That, that, that if we lose that intentionality, then the routines will fall off and we'll revert back to habits, right? Rituals to me, um, involve a connection with something that is purposeful and meaningful, right? In addition to the intentionality, right? And so we can we can look at rituals both in a sacred sense, but also in just kind of a secular sense, because we don't have to have any type of, you know, high um, religiosity to, 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 to connect with a ritual, although it can be, right? Um, so for me, you know, for me, Serving and helping others is a ritual, right? For me, I've learned um, that breathing is a ritual, mm. right? It's not something that I always tap into, but when I have that awareness and connection, this right now is a ritual, right? Us coming together and communing and communicating together can be a ritual. I hope it never becomes a habit. Right. Because it has so much more that we can tap into. It's so much deeper than just a, a, a routine or a habit. Right. Um, and so how I use that with clients is that I don't preach to them and I don't try to impose upon them what my beliefs are. But I really do ask them. I inquire with them and ask them to ask themselves what has purpose and meaning in their life. In order to really not only engage in some change, but also to sustain change, why? Why would you want to turn towards the pain when it's our habit or our conditioned response to turn away from the pain, right? So much of our lifestyle in this Western world, in this American system, right, is that we look for anesthesia or amnesia. We look for things that will numb the pain or dumb the brain. So we don't have to think about it and we don't have to feel about it. Right. And that's very, very problematic. And so we confront that gently and compassionately, but also honestly in working with clients. What are we running from and what are we running towards? Right. And these are very much existential questions, but also rooted in a sense of of trying to have a deeper understanding of who we are, who we have who have we become and who are we becoming, right? That's all about what growth and change is. But we're living in such an unjust and oppressive and traumatizing world. We are exposed to so much stimulation, so much pain that we resort to maybe unhealthy habits 
inclined with part of our human nature to turn away from it rather than to turn towards it, right? And so the hardest thing to do is to be able to sit in a space with only ourselves and to be at peace, right? To be in a space only with ourselves and not have the distraction, right? Um, and it's very hard. And so we we really see that in the quarantine times. So everyone that I'm working with during this time is really, um, if we want to you know, pathologize it or look for some type of clinical explanation, really everybody's going through an adjustment disorder, mm. right? We are all adjusting to this unexpected, unwelcomed, unwanted quarantine or COVID-19 with the threat of our health and livelihood on the line, right? But we're also adjusting to, okay, now we're seeing what this system has been built and founded upon, which is really oppression and trauma and terror, right? And how are we going to reconcile that pain? How are we going to grow and heal through that pain? Because I hope to God we don't go back to normal, Mm. right? Because normal is not healthy. Normal is not healthy, right? So let's look for a more healthy way of living. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that that was a great answer. I really don't have much to add to that, Orrin. I will say in working with the kids that I work with, um, it is important for me, um, and and I'm saying the kids, but also the families, um, as well as my own family, to look at the ritualistic things that we do that harm us. Um, A lot of times with the kids that I work with, it's about their peers, right? And what is cool at this particular time and, and, you know, uh, to do breaking in cars or robbing people or things of that nature, right? So let's look at that behavior uh, more as a ritual and asking yourself, what are you really getting out of it, right? Like not just the immediate thing that you get from robbing someone, right? But what do you get out of it? And if there's a rush, then can we get that rush from doing another behavior, right? And so looking again at some of the rituals um, that could be negative to you, but also uh, looking at some of the positive rituals um, that we have somehow lost as far as personally, um, everybody put your phones down and let's um, let's sit down and have dinner. Let's make that a ritual um, that we do, Um, you know, so kind of getting back to some of the rituals and things that we've learned from our forefathers um, and, you know, our ancestors and not Mm. losing those things. Right. But looking at how those things helped us um, and how it can help us moving forward. And then also um, the biggest thing I wanted to say is that, you know, there's always a lesson in a ritual. Um, and so let's look and see what the lesson is in this particular ritual that we're doing, that that we're going to do. So that's what I, I would say about rituals. Excellent. Excellent. Um, very significant points. Real quick before I answer it, I just want to remind our listeners, if you have some feedback or a different perspective or disagree or agree, you can reach us at unicornscouch at gmail.com. Once again, that's unicornscouch at gmail.com. A couple things that I try and focus on when it comes to rituals, that is being present um, and and being intentional about rituals. Like what I find is that a lot of people have rituals because the pure definition of rituals is about a ceremony, a repetitive ceremony and things like that. But when you want to maximize your rituals in a healthy way, I think it's important for people to be present 
to the an intentional about the ritual we want to create. Rob, you just mentioned a little bit having dinner. Well, having dinner together is not valuable if nobody if everybody comes to dinner, nobody's talking. You're just physically in the same place and and nobody's engaged in I'm let me reframe that. It has not optimal value. I don't want to say it doesn't have any value, but it doesn't have optimal value if you're not intentional with it. And you know, and so it's important around rituals that we make sure that our rituals that we create that are based on ha- habits, based 